uh, in this session on theology proper. My name is Austin Duncan. I am the college pastor here at Grace Church, and it's a joy to serve in that way, uh, but it's also fun to teach a class on theology for a change. So uh, we have before us uh, the greatest of all topics, and before we dive into that, let's pray and ask for God's help um, together. Father, thank you for our church and the clarity of truth that we receive week after week uh, from the pulpit and in the classes we attend and in the fellowship that we share. Reminded of that even this morning as we heard once again the clarity of the true gospel, a gospel that calls us to abandon self and sin and restores our relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So, God, will you speak once again through your word today and give us a a word from you, help us to hear from you, to apprehend the incomprehensible as we think about your divine nature and being. Uh, May this entice our hearts to worship you more and more truly. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Okay, we have before us a class called Who is God? A Study in Theology Proper. And that is a ridiculously broad assignment. Uh, If you were to take a theology class here at the church, for example, uh, our Fundamentals of the Faith class, you would spend many weeks considering uh, theology proper, the doctrine of who God is, and you wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface uh, on that topic. Uh, Theology is and has always been called the queen of the sciences. It is the study of God, and it does seek to answer the question, who is God? What is he like? What's his character and work, his nature, his divine being? And within the study of theology, you can study many different aspects of God's nature. For example, in our Fundamentals of the Faith class, and I'll mention it a few times because if you've never taken it, and especially if you're new to our church or if you've recently come to faith in Christ, uh, it is a great opportunity to get plugged in, to meet other people. There are small format classes. I think there's 15 or so people in a class uh, taught by trained teachers, and they Uh, will engage you with a workbook, and you have kind of curriculum to go through, homework to do, and it's universally thought of. Everybody that I know has taken one of those classes have found it extremely helpful. So in the Fundamentals of Faith, hereafter FOF, uh, in FOF classes, I believe you study 15 attributes of God. Uh, They look at incommunicable attributes, which are attributes that God and God alone has, like Uh, his uh, omniscience, his omnipresence, uh, God knowing everything, God being outside of space, being everywhere. Those are incommunicable. In other words, we don't share those attributes, even in part. Uh, And then you look at also communicable attributes like justice and mercy, things obviously that we understand in part and we can even display in part, but not to the depths of 
uh, God's love or justice or wisdom, for example. So in that class, however many weeks it is, it's, it's about 15 attributes from my count that they go through. And since we all want what all good and godly Christians want on Sunday around this time, which is lunch, I don't want to belabor every single attribute that I could mine. Uh, plus, it doesn't, the Fundamentals of Faith class, cover many other attributes of God that you could find in a systematic theology book, uh, one that's maybe historical, like Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, or one that's contemporary, like Dr. MacArthur's uh, Biblical Doctrine, also known as The Great White Whale. And, <laughs> and so you can use uh, those to explore other attributes of God, difficult topics like his impassibility or uh, God's, uh, even the nature of what it means that God is triune and, and understanding uh, what, what it means that we worship a triune God. And so as I weighed my very broad topic, who is God, a study in theology proper, I wanted to talk about theology and a starting point of theology in our discovery of who God is. I want to talk about an aspect of God that I think is a gateway to further study all the rest of, of Christian theology. If we can understand this one description of God, it will ironically unlock for us a lifetime and even an eternity of study of everything that is in God. And so what I want to talk to you today about is I want to talk to you about God's incomprehensibility. God's incomprehensibility. That's the one aspect of God I'd like to address today. And I realize there's great irony in trying to understand incomprehensibility. But I hope that by explaining it to you, you can understand that God is truly incomprehensible and I want this to be a practical talk as well. And so the way we'll move through this is I'll give you four really practical benefits of studying the incomprehensibility of God. And so we'll try to move through a lot of Bible, a lot of quotes from theologians living and dead, and help you understand God's incomprehensibility because it has such practical benefit to us as we seek to study theology, which should be the chief aim of our lives. Calvin, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, says the first thing is knowledge of self and God. It's the first priority for every believer to know ourselves, and the way we know ourselves is through a true knowledge of God. A young pastor, January 7th, 1855, in England, opened his morning sermon. He was 20 years old, and he opened his sermon with these words. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, 
the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Those were the words preached by a 20-year-old baby, Charles Spurgeon, reminding us, I don't know what you were reading when you were 20, but I didn't say anything like that. If you had put all the words of my 20s together, I had never said any paragraph quite like that. But it's a reminder and a starting point that theology is where we belong. As believers, as the people of God, the object of our worship and our attention, the motivation for our lives and our work, uh, for it to be noble and acceptable to God, for the the whole of our lives, our, our, our work as parents, as spouses, as employees and employers, as neighbors and as citizens, as human beings, the whole of who we are and what we do is enriched and enhanced by a proper understanding of who God is and what He's like and what He requires of us. And I believe that the starting point for a aspiring theologian and, and all of us should consider ourselves aspiring theologian, theologians because you know we are theologians. Even your next-door neighbor who doesn't go to church is a theologian. As soon as you say the sentence, well, I think God is fill-in-the-blank. I remember being a youth pastor in New Mexico, neither New nor Mexico, many years ago. And there was a kid I was preaching about the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and he came up to me afterwards. We'll call him Jeff because uh, his name was Jeff. And he came up to me and said, uh, well, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think God is like uh, a painting that my grandfather had on his wall in the room where Jesus is knocking and the person isn't opening the door and Jesus can't get in unless you open the door. And, you know, kind of that classic feeble conception uh, caricature of the limited power of Christ is, is his conception of God. And that's because Jeff was a theologian. Now, He wasn't a good theologian. He wasn't a biblical theologian, in my opinion. But we're all theologians. And the more biblical and accurate and careful we can be will enhance our life before God, our Creator. So I want to talk about incomprehensibility. Incomprehensibility. And let's start, before I get into my four points with defining it. And I think it's pretty easy at the outset. No one would say, I hope, that they know everything there is to know about God. Right? Nobody here is willing to say that. I hope. That I know everything there is to know about God. Let me take it a little further. I also am quite sure that you wouldn't be willing to say that you know everything about something that God does. So in other words, it's obvious that none of us understands the infinite God in all His infinitudes. But what about an aspect of what He does? Pick anything. Uh, His creation and use of the angelic. Kind of a weird pick, but I picked it. 
So do you know everything there is to know about God's ordination of angels and demons? Nope. Don't think you'd be willing to sign up for that. Okay, let's take one of his communicable attributes of God. That's something God does and orchestrates. What about one of his communicable attributes, like God's love? Who would dare say that they have plumbed the depths of the love of God, that they have exhausted the fountain that is God's love? I don't know any honest Christian that would assert something like that. And so that gets us to this concept of incomprehensibility. Everything that could be known about God is not known by us. And what we're going to work on this morning is the reasons that we would think of at the outset for why that is are not found in us exclusively. What I mean by that is one of the reasons and one of the things that slows or causes our knowledge and understanding of God to be limited is our sin, right? Human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, inherited from our father Adam, uh, guilty by our own sinful decisions, thoughts, actions, our failure to give God his due, to worship him as we ought. Sin has corrupted us through and through. And so sin affects our minds and our thinking, and it would certainly be a barrier in a full understanding of something about God. But when we're talking about incomprehensibility, it isn't our sin exclusively that makes God incomprehensible. It's God who makes God incomprehensible. His infinite glory is in and of itself unfathomable apart from our own sin. In other words, God's attribute of incomprehensibility is always true even before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. So though Adam and Eve had peace with God and fellowship with God and knew God to a certain extent greater than their sons and daughters would have because of the corrupting effects of the fall, even before Adam and Eve turned away from God and were expelled from Edenic glory, they did not know God exhaustively. Does that make sense? So it's not just our sin, and it's not just our creatureliness, because God in His glory is incomprehensible apart from us. And so we easily admit that we don't know everything there is to know about God, and that our study of theology, whatever aspect of theology that we seek to explore, is limited not just because of our sin, but because of the infinite glory and fullness and majesty and being and excellency of the divine being. So, I want to define incomprehensible. And I'm going I'm to have Dr. MacArthur do it for us on page 146. 
145. Because God has revealed the fact of His existence in Scripture, He has given humans statements by which they can have at least some knowledge of Him. The Bible makes God knowable to humans to the extent that the content of the Bible reveals truth about Him. Scripture teaches that man may know God truly, yet not exhaustively. In the classical terminology, God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible. That's the key sentence. God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible. He goes on to describe God's knowability and then provides this when it comes to God's incomprehensibility. And we'll get into more of God's knowability at the end, but knowability. Uh, This is God's incomprehensibility a little further. Though God can be truly known, Scripture also reveals that God is not incomprehensively or exhaustively knowable to humans in any aspect of His being or actions. Humans are limited to time and space, and an atom are corrupted by indwelling sin, which has made them rebellious towards God and has darkened their understanding of God's revelation in Bible and in nature. God is eternal and holy, transcending time and space, infinitely omniscient and absolutely morally pure. God alone is great. Man was created as a different and inferior order of being, even in his originally created state. Humanity could not know God exhaustively, but after the fall of Adam, even the knowledge humans can have of God is corrupted by sin, right? We talked about that a moment ago. The Bible unmistakably testifies to the fact that God cannot be fully known by humans, even apart from the darkening factor of their internal sinful corruption. Man cannot see God and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6. The depths of God are known only to God, 1 Corinthians two eleven. The Spirit searches the deep things of God. Going a step further, God cannot be fully searched out. And then he provides a host of verses that we'll, we'll look at in a moment. But he quotes Wayne Grudem, and, and I want to use this quote as getting this definition of incomprehensibility down before we dive into its practicality. Here's Grudem on the same topic. It is not only true that we can never fully understand God, it is also true that we can never fully understand any single thing about God. His greatness, Psalm 145.3, is unsearchable. His understanding, Psalm 147.5, is unlimited. His knowledge, Psalm 139.6, his riches, wisdom, judgment, ways, Romans 11.33, are all beyond our ability to understand fully. Thus, we may know something about God's love, power, wisdom, and so forth, but we can never know His love completely or exhaustively. We can never know His power exhaustively. We can never know His wisdom exhaustively and so forth. In order to know anything about God exhaustively, we would need to know it as He Himself knows it. That is, we would have to know it in its relationship to everything else about God and its relationship to everything else about creation throughout all eternity. We can only exclaim with David, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Psalm 139.6. And so you could memorize the contents of this inspired book, your Bible. Or you could also memorize the contents of this 
thousand-page white whale. And you would learn lots about God, correct? But you would only be beginning because of who God is. He's truly incomprehensible. How many of you are in college? Raise your hand if you're in university right now. So these are my kind of people. And now, keep your hand up if you don't have the white whale. You don't have the white whale? I want the guy with the big hair to come get the white whale. Here you go. The white whale, my gift to you. What's your name? Jake. Jake. White whale. So, expect you to have that memorized by next Sunday, Jake. That wasn't an act of generosity on my part. It was just really in my way up here. So... Okay, so what we want to do is, is get this definition down. I, I feel like we're, we're getting there, right? We're close. Let me give you one more kind of tiny version from the late, great J.I. Packer in his book, Affirming the Apostles' Creed. And I think this will be the key, and then we'll get into the four practical benefits to delving into God's incomprehensibility. Listen to how Packer describes it. Therefore, we find him incomprehensible. By which I mean not making no sense, but exceeding our grasp. Exceeding our grasp. That's because there's two kinds of incomprehensible, isn't there? There's elements and aspects of this talk that are undoubtedly incomprehensible. And that's not because of the nature and being of the talker or the talk. No, it is the nature of being of the talker and the talk. So incomprehensible in that sense means that guy didn't make any sense. I didn't get it. The flaw could be here. It could be there. We'll do 50-50. But when we're talking about the incomprehensible nature of God, we're talking about not a lack of clarity in his communication. We're not talking about Uh, even ultimately the failure on our part because of our sin, we're talking ultimately about because of the glorious and manifold perfection of the divine, he is beyond our grasp. So, incomprehensible. It comes from the Latin of comprendere, prehension. You know the word prehension? Any physical therapists in here? No physical therapist. There's a physical therapist. You know what prehension is? Prehension. It's from the word, maybe it's not a physical therapy word. The Latin of prehension means to grasp, right? Like a prehensile creature, like when they talk about gorillas and they can use a tool or whatever. That's that word to grasp, right? Prehensile. And when we use that prefix on it of come, That means to encircle or surround. So somebody left this weird thing up here. It's not a bullet casing. It's something from Star Wars. I don't know. Maybe a microphone part or something. Could sell it on eBay, maybe. So if I'm going to comprehend this thing, just in the basic kind of meaning of where that word comes from, it means not just to grab onto it to 
prehence, but to comprehence, which means to encircle or surround it. And so I have comprehended this thing because it has been grasped in my big five bananas for fingers hand. And you can't see it, and I've got it completely surrounded and encircled. Now, there's another word that we use related to prehension or grasping, and that is that word, not comprehension, but what? Different beginning. Apprehension, good. So apprehension is to, ap means at or toward. Ap means to grab onto, to grasp at. And so I can grasp this little C-3PO knuckle, or I can comprehend it. And when it comes to the knowledge of God, there is an ability to apprehend things, to know, to grab onto, but there is an inability to comprehend the knowledge of God because it is far greater than could ever be comprehended. That's why Packer says we find him incomprehensible, which are, by which I mean not making no sense, but exceeding our grasp. So why does this matter? If everybody's already willing to say, look, I admit I don't know everything about God, easiest admission ever, then why should this be a starting point in our study of theology? And I can think of four practical benefits. Practical benefit number one as we explore this topic together for a few more minutes. Number one, God's incomprehensibility excludes boxing in God. It excludes boxing in God. And pardon me, the the metaphor. But the whole idea of incomprehensibility is a natural defense in Christian classical theology that provides borders and boundaries from you ever thinking that you've arrived in your understanding of how God works. It also prevents you from an overly simplistic expression of your understanding of God that would try to contain him or tame him or confine him or stop him. This is the great flaw of nearly every cult in the religious landscape of the world today. They have very little room for God's incomprehensibility, but instead through some external human revelation beyond God's revelation in the Bible, they have a prophet or a person who hears directly from God and tells you God says this and this and this, and they therefore will commit theological error by confining him or creating a caricature of God, often in their own image. And when we talk about not boxing God in, we're talking about making sure that we maintain in our study of God His 
incomprehensible and unfathomable nature. Let's get the Bible going. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, David is musing about at least two aspects of God's nature. God's omnipresence, the fact that God is not contained to a single space, and God's omniscience, that God's knowledge, specifically here, of David is limitless. And so look how David describes this in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. That's that language of comprehension and apprehension. God comprehends David completely. He has him surrounded entirely, and he has laid hold of him, apprehended him sufficiently. God has full knowledge and full grasp of David, his innermost thoughts, his locality, his motives, his future. All of it is in God's possession, according to verse 5. David's response is, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, verse 6. It is too high, I cannot attain to it. And then that famous phrase of worship, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is the omniscience and omnipresence of God through the lens of God's incomprehensibility. And it provokes David in verse 17 to say, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them all! And so that expression of vastness, of a knowledge, verse 6, too wonderful, too high, beyond our ability to attain make sure that we don't have a simplistic and man-centered and boxed-in view of God. In other words, the project of theology for all the theologians in the room today is not to solve God. To be able to say, I've figured this out completely, but to continue in your journey in the depths of exploring the unfathomable nature of God. Because something happens when we study God through the revelation of Himself. He simultaneously becomes more known to us. And that would be your testimony, right? Like however long you've been a Christian, you've been learning about God, learning about God's salvation, learning about God's mercy, His love, learning about God's power. And there was a time in your life when you began to apprehend that, to understand that. But there was probably another point in your life further on that that became even more meaningful you, 
to you, significant to you. You, you understood, maybe it was a, a sermon you heard, a, a, a theological book you read. Perhaps it was going through the refining fire of trials in your life that made you understand the love and mercy of Christ in a way you had not experientially understood it before. And you could easily say, at this point in my life, I have a greater knowledge of God than I had then. And I would even be able to, you'd probably be able to say, compared to that, I, I barely knew him, and now I know him so much more. Simultaneously, and this is because of God's incomprehensible nature, you recognize that though you are further on that path of the knowledge of God, God remains to you so unknown, and your ability to fathom just how little you grasp at this present stage of Christian maturity that you can see how much more there is in God that you have not explored. You follow that? And so all of us can see in this never putting God in a box and recognizing the infinite nature of God that as we come deeper and closer in our knowledge of God, God simultaneously, and uh, James Dozal, Master Seminary graduate and theologian par excellence, helped me understand this. He grows simultaneously more known and more unknown at the same time. Does that make sense? And so we're trying to not confine him or have a caricature of God. Theology doesn't solve God. It explores the unfathomable depths of God. This is again Dozal's words here. No thought of God, none of our own words about God are equal to the majesty and glory of God. None of our thoughts no expression, no theological textbook could begin to express or equal the majesty and glory of God. And it makes us say, whoa, like David, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. You know, David ends Psalm 139 by inviting this God to do what he has already done in response to God's intimate, exhaustive knowledge of David, his sin, his motives, his whereabouts, his plans, his dreams, all of it. Listen to how Psalm 139 ends. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. See, David is not seeing his God's knowledge of David, who's a finite creature, as confined in any way, but unconfined because of the incomprehensibility of God. That's one practical benefit 
keeps you out of cults and out of short-selling the depths that are before you in your study of theology. It excludes boxing God in, number one. Number two, number two, it exposes idolatry. Now, this is related, and I'm doing two negative ones, and then I'll do two positive ones. This is related, but I think it's less about cults and man-centered limitations, and it's more about a problem that the human heart often falls itself into. Calvin said in the Institutes that the human heart is an idolatry factory. It just produces idols. And likewise, an exploration of God's limitless incomprehensibility, the unfathomable nature of our God, will guard us against idolatry. It exposes perhaps idols we've already created because we have not thought of God in this way, and that's how God actually is. You see, every expression of idolatry, and maybe my favorite, if I'm allowed to have a favorite expression of idolatry, in Isaiah 46 is the Babylonian gods that Isaiah was Uh, chastising Israel for for worshiping. He describes them in Isaiah 46 as being burdensome to their carriers because the people literally had to carry their idol around with them. It was a a crafted image. It was a purchased image. It was a physical image made of wood. And so he contrasts the work they have to do in worshiping their idols and setting up in their house and bowing down to them and offering them food and all the stuff that they did with ancient idolatry to the fact that their God, verse 3, had carried his people from their birth. So you can either carry your gods or God can carry you. And Isaiah extols the eternality of God, the unequaled greatness of God. Listen to these words, Isaiah 46, 5. To whom would you liken me? God speaking. And make me equal and compare me that we would be alike. Who would you liken him? With who would you make him equal? With who would you compare him? Verse 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, God's sovereignty on display there is rooted and grounded in God's incomprehensibility. And so we cannot limit what God can do. And when we do, we make a God in our own likeness. We fashion a God according to our imaginations rather than according to His revelation and His inexhaustible, unfathomable being. Augustine. Augustine is in Florida. Augustine's in heaven. Augustine, I think, helps with this and what he says here. I got my Augustine quote. Don't worry. It's, it's going to come. Idolatry, I found it, <laughs> is worshiping a God you comprehend. Augustine. Augustine wrote six million words in his corpus. 
Those might be my favorite. Idolatry is worshiping a God that you comprehend. Now, the converse of that by uh, the theologian Bavink, he begins his Reformed dogmatics by saying, mystery is the and this, this is some Dutch stuff, so there's translation here. Mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. You could use the word doctrine there, or theology. Mystery is the lifeblood or vital element of theology. Now, that's not what the liberals do when they talk about the mystery of theology, and they throw their hands up and and say, well, we can't understand God, and therefore we will not try. But instead, Bavink says that that mystery is necessary, like blood is necessary to life, like the vitality, the center of something, the main element of it. If you do not have mystery, you do not have theology. That's what he's moving towards. Again, Dozal says the goal is not to overcome this incomprehensibility, but to confess him in his incomprehensibility. If you have a God who's comprehensible, you have made an idol that is not the true God. Because the knowledge of God cannot be contained by a creature. Number three. Now we get positive here. Let's start to get positive. Not only does the incomprehensibility of God exclude boxing God in, it exposes our idolatry, but thirdly, and I think most significantly, it expands our worship. It expands our worship. And for this, I think we should go a few psalms than where we were to Psalm 145. I love Psalm 145. No, we should go to Psalm 136 first. And then we'll go to Psalm 145. We're having lunch. Don't worry. We'll get there. Psalm 136 is one of the most repetitive songs in the Psalter. It repeats a refrain, I don't know, about 20 some times. Uh, Every line is interrupted by a repeated line, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It's the hesed, the mercy, the covenant loyalty of God that David says is worth thanking God for, verse 1, giving thanks to his supremacy, verse 2, giving thanks to his sovereignty in verse 3, and every single cause for thanks or expression of God's nature is interrupted by these words, for his loving kindness is everlasting. What that's telling us about God's incomprehensibility is it has a tendency in whatever avenue we're considering of God or of his works to expand our worship. So much so that to understand the covenant faithfulness and loyalty and love of God on display in David's life 
was to repeatedly speak not only of that loving kindness, but to tell the worshipers that that loving kindness is by nature eternal or everlasting. Everything that we know about God does not have edges or a rim. Our knowledge of God is not a jar or a glass of water that could be filled and then could contain no bore. God in whatever God is and whatever God does and however God does this is by nature everlasting, eternal. And so that in turn causes our worship to be expanded because our worship is not stopped because of an exhausting of the truth about God. And it is not stopped because our worship is intended to be fueled for all of time and eternity. I wonder, is there any kids in here? Any kids? Anybody consider themselves a kid? There's a lot of fruit flies up here. They're incomprehensible in there. Sort of. Not actually, but kids in here? Raise your hand if you're a kid in here. Some of my kids are in here. They better raise your hand, kids. Hi. Hello, kid in here. Some kids in here. There's a few kids in here. Kids, have you ever thought, you could be honest for a second, heaven might be like super long church. And therefore, heaven might be, and you'd never say this because you're, you're good and godly kids, less than fun. You probably wouldn't say it, but maybe you've thought it, is heaven going to be boring? Because I've heard John MacArthur tell me you know, my whole life as a little kid growing up, right? You're saying this, that what we're going to do there is we're going we're gonna to praise. And you probably like to sing, right? But do you like to sing forever? <laughs> and I want to help kids and grown kids alike understand that our worship is not just singing and our praise has all kinds of vital and lifelike ways to it adventure a thousand other things that will happen in the age to come and all that we do will be worship but the reason that nothing in heaven not a moment of heaven and there's a lot of moments in eternity are going to be boring is because God is inexhaustible. And when He's the object of our lives, if you've ever had one day of pleasure and joy and excitement, even this summer, like a day you looked forward to and were excited that the cousins were coming and that there was going to be ice cream or you're going to the amusement park or to the beach or, or whatever you were thinking and you thought best day ever in heaven because of God's inexhaustible nature. Every moment will be improved upon in the next moment, but will not be lacking in anything. But because of God's inexhaustible, incomprehensible nature, unfathomable goodness, every moment will be better than the last without diminishing the prior moments. That's Jonathan Edwards' ATD style from a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. 
And he explores the concept of how God's love could be ever expansive to us. And it's because our worship is expansive because God is unfathomable. Now, we'll do Psalm 145. Verse 1 and 2, I will extol you. David's praying and praising. I'll extol you, my God, O King, and I'll bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. And you're going, how? How is there endless praise? And the way that praise is expansive is because of who God is. Verse 3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In fact, we can't even pull it off. One generation, verse 4, shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. I love David. But here's the thing. David barely had a fat clue. Right? I mean, David never, never heard a, gossip, a sermon from Mark 10. He didn't. And I'm not... I, let me explain. <laughs> David beheld the covenant loyalty of God. David beheld the forgiveness of of God for his great sin. David composed inspired worship by the Spirit of God. David experienced the, the power of God in the fulfillment of redemptive history up to this point. But David never even saw the fulfillment of that promise in his earthly life. Yet David's praise is expansive because of who God is. We, 2023 bad year. June was weird, right? We have a greater apprehension of God's revelation just in the new covenant than David ever did in his lifetime. Therefore, how much more expansive is our praise just on the ruler that is 3,500 years later? Whoa. Now add 35 million years into eternity. Because the acts and works of God will not cease to exist when He brings all things to their consummation. What a bad word consummation is because it sounds like, that's it, wrap it up, folks. Roll the credits. But the credits of God's glory will never roll because it's unending and so our praise is unending. Nehemiah? This is getting out of hand. Nehemiah 9.6 says that he is more glorious and higher than our thoughts. Or, or maybe, maybe 1 Kings 8. I know I'm getting deep into weeds over here, but 
Look at these. Jot them down at least. 1 Kings 8. Solomon built a house for God because God told him to. David wanted to. Solomon got the privilege. And I was just there last month. First trip ever to Israel. I endorse it. I think you've already heard, you know, go to Israel, your Bible comes alive. Uh, my Bible was already alive, but it was very informative and helpful. So first trip to Israel, we were there, and we saw the Temple Mount. And we spent so many hours talking and discussing and walking and thinking about what used to be there. Because now it's a big, ugly Islamic dome, right? Dome of the Rock. Personal opinion, ugly. The temple was the most glorious thing that had ever been built because it was, in its architecture, ordained by God himself and dedicated to the glory of God. Here's the thing about that temple. That temple merely represented God's presence. I know, right? And in 1 King 8.27, listen to this kind of parenthesis that Solomon says about this incredible house laden with gold and artistry and chopping down cedars of Lebanon and bringing them in and importing the panels on the walls and carefully putting the Ark of the Covenant, this most sacred divine furniture in the center of it beyond the the curtains and in the holy of holies and the the bronze sacrificial altar and all the pieces and robes of the priests and all the glory of it which is reflected glory shekinah glory not god himself but just a an image of god's glory is all here and solomon i think as he's taking in this massive construction project that is now complete and being dedicated to god and for the use of god's people he recognizes something about god's incomprehensibility when he says verse 27 But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. He's apprehending that he can't comprehend God. And this is in a dedicatory worship service for the temple that God told him to build. You see, God's glory and height of who he is expands our worship. Fourth and finally, and then we'll see if there's any questions or I think we're supposed to end with questions. Sounds dangerous. Fourth and finally, Not only does it exclude boxing God in, that was number one, exposes idolatry, number two, expands our worship, number three, number four, encourages us in endless pursuit of the knowledge of God. God's incomprehensibility encourages us in our endless pursuit of the knowledge of God. 
A number of times I've used the word unfathomable. And I can get that from various places in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6, I think we read that earlier in the white whale reference. God dwells in unapproachable light. And he cannot be, he is not seen, and he cannot be seen. I could take you on a big journey through the book of Job, but I wouldn't do that to you. Let's go on a small journey through the book of Job. <laughs> right before the Psalms, you'll find the book of Job. Just a, just a quick note here in the book of Job. Job 26, verse 10. This is Job rebuking one of his friends. His friends think they have God figured out. They are the perfect example. Why didn't I use them of boxing God in? Because they think they've got him solved. It's retribution principle. Obviously, Job's a sinner because he's suffering. That's how they think. Job is rebuking Bildad. And in Job 26, he starts to express this incredible truth after talking about the greatness of God. Verse 6, naked is Sheol before him. Verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Verse 8, he wraps the water in clouds. The clouds do not burst under them. He obscures the face of the moon. Verse 10, he inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillar of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Verse 13, by his breath the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. And this is Job's best attempt to show his bad counselors the unfathomable depths of God. And in this description, he concludes verse 14 by saying, Behold, these are but the fringes of his way. And how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Job in his pain and suffering was wrestling with the reason for what happened to him. And what he would eventually come to, and here he, he touches it, is the answer was not the answer. Why did this happen to me? Why did I suffer like this? The answer was, God. God is right and righteous, and who God is is the object of our praise. And Job proves God right in this book because God said, Job worships me not because of the blessings in his life, but because of me. And as Job describes God's greatness and power, he recognizes he's just touched the edge, the fringe, just the, the loose string of who God is. And so in this kind of final thought here, what we're recognizing is that we know Him when we know Him not. In other words, our recognition of the depth of God and our lack of knowledge of Him, of His divine incomprehensibility, parallels the knowledge that God has revealed Himself and that God far surpasses our imagination and understanding and that what we know and what we do not know both grow in increasing measure. 
And we're not like this because we master stuff. Lawn care, physics, video games, hopefully not. People master things. But God is not one you will master because it's an endless pursuit of the knowledge of God. And instead of throwing our hands up and saying, well, God is unknowable, that's not true. God is unfathomable. But the Bible repeatedly reminds us that it's our responsibility to, in the words of Isaiah, seek Him and you will what? Find Him. Well, obviously, Isaiah knows better than to say that we will solve Him or we'll reach the bottom. But a knowledge of God, the prerequisite of a knowledge of God, is this recognition that the knowledge of God is infinite and we are finite. Theologians have said the finite cannot contain the infinite. Stephen Charnick says false and idolatrous thoughts of God are not due to His incomprehensibility because God is infinite and superior. You see, God is greater than our greatest thoughts. We could never say, that's everything I know about God. That's everything there is about God. That's the, the final thing to tell you about God. And God will never succumb to your quest for the mastery of the knowledge of God. Thomas Boston encourages us in our pursuit of the knowledge of God this way. Rather than despair, learn to admire that which you cannot fathom. Rather than despair, learn to admire that which you cannot fathom. Job will go on in Job 36, verse 24 and following, to speak of the knowledge of God being too great for him. But God reveals Himself to Job in a storm. And He doesn't give Job answers. He gives Job Himself. And this is the knowledge of God that the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Timothy 6 and said, God dwells in unapproachable light and cannot be seen and will not be seen by us, who also says in a sermon in Acts 17.27, same Apostle Paul, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. Not only is the knowledge of God to be sought after, it is something that can be, what's our word? Apprehended. Not comprehended. But the Apostle Paul also didn't read Bavink because he said in Ephesians chapter 3, this is a prayer, Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, Duncan, what have you done? With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Duncan, you said we can't comprehend God and Paul just told us to. And I would say, yep. (laughs) Paul said that he prays that we would comprehend, not God, but the love of God specifically and its dimensions, breadth, height, length, depth. And he also says that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And so, fellow theologians, there's no bottom in God. So as you dive into your exploration, you know that there's no end. And that which you love and enjoy and worship and adore about God is limitless. And therefore, we study Him and we worship Him and we acknowledge the depth of His being knowing that He's greater than our greatest thought and our greatest affection could ever express, possess, or love. And we admire Him because He's unfathomable. Maybe it was a week ago They finally found that little submarine that got crunched. People took that story differently. Some people thought it was funny. Some people are horrified. Some people are never going back to the ocean. (laughs) We report, you decide. The thing that struck me the most was one of those infographics, little video online that showed the bottom of the sea in comparison to its increasing depth to get to the spot where the Titanic rests, which isn't the bottom of it. Sailors used to call that fathoms, right? Modern oceanographers, I don't think they use fathoms anymore because fathoms were what sailors used. It was in the old school, at least when I read Robinson Crusoe, It was knots in a rope, right? Like lengthened off. And they would drop that, you know, depth marker like an anchor to to see how deep it was. And they would yell out how many fathoms were left in the depth of the the ocean as they approached the the port or, or whatever. Thinking about the vastness of the ocean. And then remembering that the Bible says that God holds all of it in the palm of His hand. A God who doesn't have hands because He's Spirit provokes us to begin to touch the fringes of His ways and to know that we must rid ourselves of all small thoughts of God and embrace God's infinite 
incomprehensibility because he is a God who is outside of our understanding, but who invites us to know him and has put himself on display in the fullest revelation of himself, Hebrews chapter 1, in the glory of Jesus Christ, a glory that we partake of in salvation through faith in him alone, and a glory that will be ours to enjoy for all eternity. That is why incomprehensibility is, I think, a necessary starting point in theology proper. So now go take FOF and learn the 15 things.